the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Did I come in too soon? You'll help me out next time. Uh, it is a delight, as we do often uh, on Tuesdays when he's in town, to close the hour out with our dear friend Hugh Hallman, an attorney in town. He is the former mayor of Tempe, among many other things. He is a... Um, he is an educator and a builder of schools and a builder of a lot of great communal organizations. Hugh, it's good to see you, brother. Thanks for coming in. I am so grateful to be here. And you, of course, get to start your show anyway and uh, at any moment you like. I just think the version of your intro music or the version of that song for your intro music, Birdland, is really lovely. And and you want me to wait another bar, though? I'd like to hear that opening part yeah. of the, the, the main theme okay. come in. That's all. All right. So people listening should you know really appreciate that and then listen to different versions of Birdland, my favorite of which is the Maynard Ferguson version. Right. Uh, because it is exactly the right tempo at which one can run a nine-minute mile and slightly less, an 8.56, and feel good about oneself. Yeah. It's a great pace setter yep. for running. Yeah, it really is. There's some great versions originally done by Weather Report. But Ferguson has a claim on it because Joe Zawinul of Weather Report was in the Ferguson band before he went to Weather Report. And there's a few others. Freddie Hubbard has a really good version of it, a little different, a uh, very good version of it. And um, anyway, tra- Manhattan Transfer has a good version of Manhattan it. Manhattan Transfer. That, they really made it very popular. Do you, they had a very popular version. And they also did a lot of really great tunes yeah. that uh, earworms developed from yeah. as a result. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to drive from Chicago to L.A. Um, <laughs> you can listen three, to five versions of Birdland. 3,000 three miles <laughs> yeah. all the way. You have to get your kicks on Route 66. Their version of Route 66 uh, song is genius. It's yeah. really fabulous. These, you don't see bands like that much anymore, kind of right. vocal jazz pop. I don't. It's just that genre just doesn't really much exist anymore. And they you can't attribute them to things like Lawrence Welk and right, other, right. they were different. they were quite different. Right. Uh, Take 6 is an example of that uh, uh, group but um What's the, the last con- you five. you went to a great concert the other day. We'll get to the serious stuff in a second. Bare Naked Ladies. Bare Naked Ladies. My wife's <clears throat> birthday, uh we drove to uh Indio, California from Phoenix, from Tempe, uh, all of 4 hours and uh driving the speed limit. And we were at the Indio Casino. Uh, don't there are two of them there, and I can't remember which one it was. Uh, and it was very interesting. The whole thing was interesting to go to Indio, California, and then go to a bare naked ladies concert. It was not all that well attended. There were probably a thousand people there. We had seen bare naked ladies back in um, Minneapolis a prior year. I had a business trip out there, and it happened that they were playing, and Susan joined me on the trip. And lo and behold, it was there were five thousand people packed in for that. It was. Probably because it was also uh, started or a headline group, uh, Arizona group, the Gin Blossoms were playing, and it was fabulous. It was a wonderful concert. Uh, I want to put in a good word for some of these casinos. No one knew this would happen when they were brought out, but they really have done a great job of reviving a lot of musicians and musical reviews. Uh, David, it's happened even in your tenure two or three times where we've brought up a musician 
and say, are they still performing? I don't know if they're ever coming to concert again. And people will call and say, son of a gun, they're going to be at uh, whatever talking stick this weekend, you know. Exactly. And uh, they've done it's, – it's been a nice, a nice effect of the casinos to be bringing out some of these acts that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see. And supporting those musicians or, or performers yeah. that otherwise would uh, not have a place right. to go. So these facilities are cost-effective. They can put on a show. They're typically in a multi-purpose kind of a facility-like, so it's not the finest music performance venue, but absolutely good. And it was, in fact, an Indian casino yeah. in Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis, that we went to. Good. Okay. And there, isn't that interesting? They're still called Indian casinos, notwithstanding, notwithstanding the fact that we now prefer Native American. So right. That's, um, no one calls them Native American casinos. Correct. So that's just – it's one of those things in Odd language. Odd things, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and one doesn't want to interfere with the marketing. For right. Matter. Let's not ruin it. <laughs> They've got it figured out. They're doing just fine. Uh, the story was that Trump says he might be indicted today. Uh, we've got uh, discussions about the common man. I want to start off with actually just a slightly different issue, if I might, Hugh. Um, and it's about Your the, show. Huh? Well, Your show. Well, I didn't – we don't usually do – we don't – you prepare, but we don't rehearse. Let me Correct. put it that. We don't talk we're, about what we're going to talk about. We're making it up. But you come in prepared. Yesterday, Devon Archer testifies to the House Homeland Security Committee. He was Hunter Biden's business partner, and he blew a lot of whistles, and he uh, made a lot of news. If – you watched the right news network. Correct, because the left side, the CNNs of the world, are diligently trying to weave a narrative that there was nothing to look at here, ma'am. The Washington Post had zero stories on it. Mm -hmm. They had a front-page story on climate change because they haven't done that before. But they had zero stories on this. Breaking it, news. Yeah, breaking news. And New York Times had nothing on its website and one small story on A15. I raised this. Not I'll go one better. Yeah. NPR. Yeah. Listen to that, their yeah. news cycle this morning just yeah. so I could hear not a thing. Yeah. Except I was interested to hear that they're running a series now on uh, the difficulty in crossing the border between Mexico and the U.S., huh? the barriers to entry is what they're calling it. And um, it was a fascinating kind of opening to just get a sense of how easily the news can be biased. One footnote here, let's plug this for a second, but that their commentary was how difficult it is for people to cross the border to get a new life, thinking as opposed to to sell drugs or uh, or uh, traffic, uh, children. Uh, traffic children, exactly. So let's only talk about it as if that's the only purpose one crosses the border. And why do I pick on NPR? Because I'm a taxpayer forced to pay for it, and they get to bias the entire presentation of news. I'm going to try to hold my temper. Somebody's been pointing out the fact that I seem to have a whole whole difficulty controlling my temper. <laughs> but this view, I like no, it. No, no. This <laughs> viewpoint discrimination. Yeah ties back to, and I don't want to cut off your point, Sorry. ties back to what I want to get us back okay. to about the ASU problem on freedom of speech. Go. We'll, we'll do, and take us anywhere you want. The only point I wanted to make about this Devin Archer uh, testimony yesterday that was not touched by the Washington Post, and the website of the New York Times didn't touch it all, newsprint did it, A15, if you get to page 15. The point I just wanted to make about that is to underscore how difficult it is to have a political conversation in America. Because we go into a conversation with this knowledge because we'll listen to shows like this or watch maybe Fox News or something or, or some other alternative media power line will cover it. But you are going into a conversation with people who get their news from quote unquote the respected media or the news media of record 
and they don't touch it. And, and, and these people have no clue what you're talking about. Not only do they have no clue, you have to catch them up to it and convince them that you're not crazy that this actually happened. It makes political conversations, which is to say makes politics, damn near impossible in this country. That's all I just wanted to say. Increasingly divisive. And let's uh, – so because of Lewis, my son Lewis, on the show for a couple of years on COVID, Back we, soon, hopefully. we came to call it corporate media right. because it is driven by their advertising focus and their drive, not to say that Fox News isn't, uh, but that's part of what is increasingly dividing our conversation. But interestingly, on this very station, in a show following this show, they uh, had on a senator who did a very nice job a couple of days ago on a hearing who kept referring to it as mainstream media. No, it's not. If it were mainstream media, it would be what we experienced as children when ABC, NBC, and CBS were broadcasting news. So it's important in our conversation that we not justify their position as mainstream media because they are not don't mainstream give them that media. Credibility. They are not they don't have the credibility anymore. And it is driven by those narratives we've talked before about how journalism schools now view their job as training people who help quote shape, shape unquote the news. The news. Right. And they're trying to spin a narrative that supports policies that they believe are possible or, or desirable. And this brings me back to your first hour um, and your monologue. Okay. It is brilliant. <laughs> and so, yes, ladies and gentlemen, here I am again saying if you didn't listen live, listen through the podcast to the monologue that we talks about the common man. And this is not owed to the common man, although I bet David could cue that one up as well. He wanted to, um, yeah. And should that uh, that the the concept of who this country is for, um, that we have an elite that believes it is for them to enjoy the benefits of this position. And at the same time that we uh, have most of us who are subject to those power bases. And when we come back, I want to talk about. Your monologue and the concept of the common man here. All right. Who are we going out with? Aaron important. Copeland? Is that it? No, no, no. We're going out with Ravel's Bolero. Aha. Caught me by surprise. I need to think about that for interior decoration purposes. We'll be right back. Had to hit that E above the staff, yeah. Jeff, Jeff Tazik on uh, trumpet. That used to be the Channel 12 theme, new, uh, Channel 12 News theme back in the days of Kent Dana. Remember that? Yeah, but they wouldn't get to the trumpet. No, they wouldn't get they to that. cut in part, early. You know. and I'm, su- I'm surprised you did. Yes, David, thank you. Yes, thank you, David. Mr. Holtman. Uh, so before the break, we were mentioning your monologue in the first hour talking about the common man. And it is genius because it helps to remind us that this country is intended to be for the benefit of the people, and that is a small p people. That is all of us. And you're well-educated, I'm well-educated, but we come from relatively modest uh, backgrounds. My parents were both school teachers. My mother, as would be typical, got with child and retired from teaching and raised three children. Uh, when my youngest brother went back to school, she started back to work again and ultimately got trained as a diesel mechanic. 
So uh, that's a pretty unusual yeah. trajectory. My father taught school his entire life, his entire career, while playing trumpet for band jobs and piano, as well as coaching, because that's how he could make ends meet. And during the summers, because teachers didn't make that much money, and he was uh, committed to providing for his family, worked in the farm fields in Blythe, California, Arizona, California, uh, picking melons, uh, cantaloupe and, and uh, watermelons. Those are the people I was raised by. You were raised similarly with very important values, one of which was that one had to work, that one could make one success. Success was defined not by private aircraft and those sorts of things, but by the values you live by and the quality and character of your life. And I think your monologue really importantly touches on it and how interesting it is that the that the uh, corporate media missed – and were so puzzled over Donald Trump's election in 2016 and didn't really bother to tease out how it is that Donald Trump reached to average Americans, to, to the, those of us who went, you know, I, I may not like his style, but I appreciate his policies and the fact that he understands the devastation done to, oh, I don't know, West Virginia by what we've done to export all of our manufacturing to China now that the, the uh, Biden administration is taking massive credit for tr bringing back um, manufacturing in the United States, built off of Donald Trump's leadership to give us policies that would advance that cause. Why do I say that he's now taking credit for it? Because this day, the White House and the leftist media are trumpeting the fact that we have a building boom going on, but it is not residential building. It is manufacturing plants being built. And isn't that amazing that we have this spike in the construction of manufacturing plants? Well, it takes two or three or four years of time to create that uh, runway to start construction on something that complex. And so all of that occurred during the Trump administration and started up then, even with covid Folks started moving to bring manufacturing back to these United States. It's crucially important. But that is the common man issue. We now will have good, solid jobs for people who want to work hard and ably within the U.S. industries that we can bring back into this country. And the policies that gave us that are not those of Joe Biden. They are not those of a Democratic Congress. They are those of Donald Trump's efforts to put pressure on China to stop stealing intellectual property for us to stop buying goods where stolen intellectual property was added to it. And in all of that, I want to touch on your point. How is it that the common man could be William F. Buckley right. or Donald Trump, people who are quite wealthy? Or Ronald Reagan. Or Ronald Wilson Reagan. Well, you look at their upbringing, how they got to where they got, and it was through hard work and interaction. You can belittle Donald Trump all you want to, but as a developer, he spent a whole lot of time communing with tradesmen to understand how you build a building and understand the costs and benefits and analyze it at that level and have relationships with people who hammered nails or welded steel or sweat pipe. That's an important lesson on who they were communicating with. And it, it reminds me of a founder, um, Benjamin Franklin, 
who was never thought of as an intellect, wasn't the Jeffersonian writer or thinker. He was a very common man, and his Poor Richard's Almanac is written for people who grew up like he did as a tradesman. He always signed off as Benjamin Franklin Printer. That's what that's how he identified himself in the same way that you identify yourself as somebody who actually waited tables. I still have a problem overcoming the fact that I'm not a nine year old kid barefooted collecting for my newspaper route. That is the internal vision uh, that's in my head. Now, most people would not look at me today and say, oh, I'm a blue collar guy. That's where I am in life. And that's just the reality. So, you know, when uh, when things go wrong at my home, I don't have to call somebody to fix my toilet. I actually can fix it. When they go wrong in my home, I call you. (laughs) That's how that works. (laughs) Some fun stories. But then here's the contrast. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, as his Texas governor opponent said, was born with a silver foot in his mouth, um, lost precisely because he could not communicate with and did not have the common touch. This is a guy who did not know what a scanner was or what the price of milk was. That's the issue here. Now, do I on a daily basis know the price of milk? I've gotten to a position in life where when I go to the store, I just buy it. I don't price shop for the nickels like my father used to. I am blessed. I was raised by people who gave me a work ethic that allowed me to reach a position in life where I stop worrying about the nickel and the dime here. I still worry about it when I'm buying gas. Yes, I pass one or two gas stations when I'm driving a car that requires fuel. Interestingly, though, you point out other elements of life that are indicative of the common person. And the whole premise of this was the shocking notion, shocking, (laughs) that you eat frozen pizza. And I have plebeian tastes. Yes, (laughs) that we both do. Because when I heard the monologue, I I had to laugh to myself because I go, I think, one step better. I know that I've only eaten one. I don't say that I ate one or two. I know the number of pizzas I ate last night, frozen or not. Tried to couch it a little. Yeah, well, so he ate three is what he's trying to tell you. But I go you one better because I put that pizza in the oven, the frozen pizza I was raised on. And when I take it out of the oven, what do I put it on? Oh, gosh, I don't know. The box. Oh, good. You take the good. box, yeah. the wax-coated box, yeah. and you put the hot pizza I'm on the box. Then you cut it on that box. That's the right way to eat a frozen pizza. That's so great. And occasionally it happens in bed with my wife as we're watching, I don't know, the Diamondbacks or something else. Oh, that's great. All right, I want to talk about some of that when we come back. I want to talk about work. I want to talk about... The Democrats' view of work today and the common man and the laborer and the Republicans' view. And now we have Aaron Copeland. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the uh, Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, uh, education expert, and uh, school builder, is um, my guest in studio. That Paul Simon song we just came in with, Rhythm of the Saints. You know, he has a new album out, uh, Seven Psalms, at age 80 now, 81. He's uh, almost completely deaf in one ear. And in these interviews, he maintains how um, 
irreligious he is, how a-religious and irreligious he is. You cannot go through a Paul Simon album going back to 1966 without finding references to God and biblical references, however, including the title of that track and that album, Rhythm of the Saints. Uh, it's it's very odd. He's he's wrestling with something interesting in his soul. Uh, the psychomachia, is that the right word for it? Uh, <laughs> Hugh, you and I, um, before we went to to break, we were listening to Aaron Copeland, and I was reminded by a friend this morning that Aaron Copeland, of all people, was brought before Joe McCarthy for I his did progressive. Not know yeah, that. yeah. Interestingly enough, was brought before Joe McCarthy for his uh, progressive activities in the forties, and I, I raised that only because uh, we both recently saw Oppenheimer, which had some, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, which had some recent, um, which had some, uh, you know, references to to Joe McCarthy after the um, after the uh, after the development of the atomic bomb in New Mexico, and just interesting side note and an interesting callback. Edward Teller was played in this movie. You you got to know Edward Teller a little bit. I can't say I got to know him. I met him is probably a better way to put it. When I was working on the Reagan Bush campaign in 1984. Um, and I was uh, running a thing called Scholars for Reagan Bush. We had, uh, before it was really popular, divided up the entire electric into every possible little subcategory. And I was running Scholars for Reagan Bush and Economists for Reagan Bush and, um, uh, let's see, Estonians, Lithuanians, <laughs> Latvians, uh, Democrats, etc. for Reagan Bush. Truly, Democrats for Reagan Bush. And uh, the leading Democrat was one of your mentors, Oh, it would have been Jean Kirkpatrick. Jean Kirkpatrick. Yeah, sure. So she gave a keynote address in Los Angeles in uh, September, I think it was September, um, before a thousand people. And it was labor for Reagan. It was all the D-side groups we pulled together. But back to Edward Teller, who was himself, the, this whole band of people were futzing around in that sort of communism, labor party stuff and all that stuff going on. And I think that's important for today to understand that's what elites do. That's what educated people do. They want to be cool and on that cutting edge. And at the time, Edward Teller and uh, Oppenheimer and others were pulled together. They were all academics at the highest levels on these campuses where it was really cool to be a communist or party member, carry the card, etc., Oppenheimer, of course, as the story is told, never became a communist, but had plenty of friends who were. And it was the cool thing to do. We've got that same stuff going on now. You know, the term that's used is woke. You've got to be on that edge of things. And you read the uh, biographies of a number of the professors from the Barrett Honors College, Craig and Barbara Barrett's Honors College namesake, that has gone very far left and beat the heck out of Dennis Prager as a white nationalist, the most insulting thing you could possibly say to a man who is not only a a reverent Jew, but is one of the great scholars on the Holocaust. Call him a Nazi, effectively. Really? Um, And in that context, I think it's important to come back to this notion that what we're dealing with in these elites, tying to your monologue, are people who want to be seen as cool and, you know, cutting edge in today's environment. And then when you look as the arc of history changes, you see how thin that kind of crud is. And it's a a very thin gruel. And it's so obviously thin that those of us who try to hang on to real values and the stuff that's valuable and real in life recognize it. But it doesn't stop them 
from participating in truly uh, the notion of viewpoint discrimination. That if you're not part of that cabal, you cannot be allowed in the academy. Now, McCarthy and others put a pressure on the opposite side of it, and you can decide or not whether Oppenheimer was wrongly accused, etc., that Edward Teller, who always stayed out of that mostly, and ultimately was quite the conservative. He was the father of the hydrogen bomb, but went on to be the father of Reagan's Star Wars. And that's how I met Edward Teller, working on those issues. And he wrote editorials for us that were vitally important. You placed them. And I placed them. It was delighted. When we come back, we'll talk more about the topic of work and commonality, common man, what Calvin Coolidge called the invisible man. Hugh Hallman is my guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, David's been doing a masterful job of uh, of pulling the uh, the song lines that hold the world together, or at least hold this hour together. The um, the Australian natives, once known as the Aborigines, believed the world was sung into creation and is held together by song lines. And when the the native population would go on these things called walkabouts, it was they were working in the fields, as the story goes. I think it was told by an anthropologist named Bruce Chatwin. They would hear a song or a hum or something that would somehow remind them of the creation of the world, and they'd go on these walkabouts for discovery. And music still has that effect on, on at least the three of us, <laughs> and increasingly the audience, but at least the three of us. The most important question I ever asked as a student at Claremont yeah. was in a conversation over the Soviet revolution yeah. and that uh, the reason for this conversation was the fellow was at Claremont playing on the guitar of uh, musical pieces from that era and it struck me and I asked this question and I think it's still relevant did the revolution inspire the music or did the music inspire the revolution right. and when you listen to music that is meaningful yeah. that's what it does yeah. there is a reason we use marching bands to move people into battle it it inspires I think the battle and hymn of the republic didn't mean something to those that soldiers is exactly right and it he wasn't died to make men holy we shall die to make men free god we bless them. shall die this is a future statement and the 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 point being those songs typically were written at the very beginning of those kinds of conflicts to motivate people into what they had to do or the horrible things that ultimately people do in war so I was thinking about that just in the context of we came in with a country piece, which is fine because, you know, that's a that's another element of, of musical genre that is kind of looked down upon, scorned by the elites, the fancy crowd um, as a vulgar, you know, uh, calling back to, to the point I was making in, in my monologue in the first hour. But it is still the most widely played genre of music on radio. And because it speaks to, again, the real life of most Americans, which is – and it's not afraid to go there. Uh, people will say, well, it's about a dog in a truck. and Well, it's about certainly work. It's about breakups. It's about love. It's an awful lot about addiction, by the way. There's a lot of addiction and alcohol and drug abuse in country music. It's about the real things in life that most people go through, but not the fancy elites. Or I was thinking about what your professors you were, you were describing in, in the academy as, as really preaching from a, different, from a different psalter, if you will, that really ends up being such thin gruel. I, I think of the f- word I think of them as being pseudo-sophisticated. I think of them as pseudo-sophisticates because it's a sophisticated language, but when you look at it rigorously, 
it's airy abstraction of nothingness. It really is. Well, the, the contrast I'm thinking of, can one hear the f- line, I'm proud to be an American, right. and not know immediately the, so- the music to which that exactly. line was put. Exactly. And that is across this country. It is what motivates people to stand up and cheer at a baseball right. game. Right. And that elites don't participate in that because it is beneath them is part of what disconnects them from the lives and allows them to create policy concepts that are disjointed and removed from what most Americans feel is correct. And how do we know this? Because you can't get the left to put to a vote most of the goofy stuff that they're now advocating for. That's right. You know, the that's why they hate that we took the courts back in certain respects, because that's where they would do it. Correct. And and you you don't see it come up in Congress. You don't see it when uh, state legislature legislators vote and legislatures vote on these things. And the biggest drumbeat now for the NPR crowd is that uh, it is now eight, I believe, Uh, presidential elections in which Democrats have won the popular vote. That's in quotation marks. And yet not always won the presidency because, as the NPR crowd would now say, the bias of the small states. Well, you know, we'll have that battle again, I suspect. We did uh, two and a half years ago about how unfair it is that small states have a greater weight in the Electoral College than big states because of the way in which the compromise was set up to have the Senate and the House numbers merged together in the number of ballots you got for the electoral, uh, electoral, Electoral College. And it was precisely because this is a United States, not a united population. I would still argue one of the errors we perhaps made uh, in changing our Constitution was the direct election of senators. It created the uh, volatility in the Senate that was intentionally established by our founders to be the cooling place. And it was through the end of the uh, 1800s that progressives got frustrated that they could not force policy changes because the Senate was blocking a lot of that stuff. Well, this is back to those elites. They get very impatient and they want things done their way. Be damned what the law is or what current opinion is. And we see that now in the academies. We see the elites at Arizona State University drafting letters. We, the faculty Mm -hmm. of the Barrett Honors College, say, quote, or colon, quote, uh, that Dennis Prager is a is a racist, homophobe, uh, white nationalist. And then they engage in viewpoint discrimination. And this is, I think, where we need to put more of our weight. Right, Dr. Johnson? That at some point we need to recognize that two things happened at Arizona State University that should be unconscionable. Someone lost her job notwithstanding alternatives that could have been put in place to preserve her position, as they did those faculty members who were teaching these courses who signed the letters. And the other was viewpoint discrimination, because today you will find on ASU's website a host of left wing events and causes promoted by Arizona State University. And the first thing that happened to the event that was touched in February, February 8th, as I recall, Mm -hmm. 
was that they took down all the advertising, not only the physical advertising within the Barrett Honors College, the flyers and other things that would be put up, but they took it off the website. Mm -hmm. That is the definition of viewpoint discrimination. A state cannot engage in it. So, ladies and gentlemen, at Arizona State University, if you are going to put up advertisements for events that are about, oh, I don't know, um, uh, How to have sex with a kraken? Uh, well, I was thinking more about. Uh, I say that because that is one of the professors. Show, books. Yes, but show uh, help me the the folks who want to. Uh, yeah, transgenderism. Trans- and transgenderism, drag queens, yeah. uh, drag queens yeah. that we want to celebrate drag queens, yeah. and not just do that, which is a fairly liberal cause, but in the advertisement itself, call out conservatives as being outraged. So do not tell me you're not engaging in viewpoint discrimination. The moment the state decides to open that source of publication, it may not engage in discrimination on the basis of the content of what is being said. And that is exactly, my friends, what Arizona State University did that is so outrageous. You don't have to have the events, but if you have one kind, you've got to have the other. And if you advertise one kind, you better advertise the other. And that's where the First Amendment was violated by a state agency that needs to be held accountable. And people paid with their jobs. People paid with their livelihoods. Hugh Hallman. Thank you, sir. I'm Seth. I'll be back. You think about the administration and the economy, you have still talk of a recession on the horizon. We all feel and discuss and know well about inflation. You've got bank failures and stock market volatility. Where do you go to invest? Why Refi has an answer because they have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. It's an investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure and collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. They are headquartered here locally. They encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road on the 101. I've been there, and they're great people. You won't get a sales pitch. No one will ask you to sign a thing. But when you meet with the team, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. Mr. Hallman, did you want to close out, or did you want me to? Either way, take it. If it's I will art, take it's it, you. Then, if it, yeah, then, it. then it's art in some ways. I had hoped we would touch on the fact that we've got belligerence in Moscow talking about using nuclear weapons if things go badly for Russia. This is as crucial and important an issue, and it is the fault of Joe Biden as it is anybody's. Uh, Dates back to his uh, predecessor in interest, uh, Barack Obama. But in terms of your monologue and what is the common man, today's art world would tell you that Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera are the most important members of any Hispanic community to have ever been artists. And yet our own homegrown artist, Ted de Grazia, um, is known throughout the world. His art continues to be purchased long after his death, and it continues to be manufactured into all kinds of earthenware and other kinds of things. Now, it's not everybody's taste, but it is something that touches on the common 
interest and the common desire of what people want. And as the left continues to try to make sure that we must feel guilty and less than uh, less than educated, if we don't appreciate Frito Kahlo and Diego Rivera over Ted DeGrazia. Now, I can appreciate all of that artwork, but the left can't. They have a viewpoint discrimination that they intend to jam down our throats. In the same way, we heard an ignoramus at the legislature decry hate speech in order to use it to label people and then said the hate speech as she defines it is not protected by the U.S. Constitution. That is as deep a viewpoint discrimination as we can crawl into. And it is at least some of the Republican legislators who pointed out that hate speech may be what you say it is or what I say it is, but it is still protected. Precisely because you cannot define it. Correct. Right. And as a result, we need to, as conservatives, as those on the on the classical liberal side of the universe, need to protect these rights and interests. And your monologue about what the, is in the common man's best interests is important thinking for people to read, listen to, and carry out in their daily lives. Oh, you're wonderful. Thank you. God bless you all, folks. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you, David. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>